Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. We find those media that are making a difference in people's lives and see if we might have something to offer that could support their work. So we work in partnership with them to help them advance what they're trying to do, advance their success in their communities or country. As an American journalist, it's easy to forget that journalists around the globe are facing significant hardships when it comes to press freedom. Fortunately, there are organizations that know this and are working to grow and sustain independent news media overseas. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Jean Mergot is the chief executive of Internews, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary in July. Jean's here to talk about Internews' mission of training journalists and digital rights activists to tackle disinformation and offer business expertise to help media outlets become financially sustainable. Jean, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So Internews has been around for 40 years. You know, tell me a little bit about its mission. You know, what has it been doing in those 40 years? Yeah, we've been around 40 years, really excited to be celebrating that this year. We are not a news organization, despite our name. We really are about building the capacity and impact of news organizations all over the world. We are currently working in about 106 countries. The work we do really includes training of journalists, providing some technical support or even technology support to journalists, mentorship, insights into international best practice, all sorts of things, everything it takes to help news organizations really thrive in in the modern day in places that we tend to work in places where independent media and freedom of expression really struggles to exist. And so they're pretty tough working environments, but bringing lots of innovative solutions. And all of our work is rooted in the belief that when people have access to good, trusted, credible, quality information, they can make better choices for their families. They can hold power to account. And I think your audience probably recognizes that, but it is just critically important in the communities and countries in which we work. So what's a, what's the origin story for Internews? How did it come about? Yeah, we started in 1982, back in our headquarters, started in San Francisco. And our founders, it was during the Cold War, and our founders really firmly believed in the power of information to really sort of break down divides, particularly the divide between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And so we started as more of a nonprofit production company that was producing what, what was called space bridges then, where satellite technology was used to connect audiences directly and audiences that couldn't talk to each other at the time. Uh, we morphed over time and in the early 90s when the Soviet Union broke up. Suddenly, we had partnerships within Russia, within all of the republics of the former Soviet Union, of media enthusiasts, people that had been working with technology and were really interested in being able to open up their own television station, which was the primary media there. And so they turned to us and sort of said, hey, we did all this production work together. Can you help us with this? Can you help us set up our own television station in our own community? And that really transformed the work that we do to this sort of more building of and supporting independent news organizations around the world. So, you know, a lot of the conversations around sort of the state of journalism as it is right now, a lot of times the guests that we're talking about digital news organizations, is your organization sort of across the spectrum of media platforms? No, we we work with any media anywhere, (laughs) any platform. You know, the rise of digital media is certainly happening around the world, but we also work in a lot of places 
where that is almost unaffordable. And so we work a lot of our, the media that we work with in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, there's, where radio remains a really important media due to literacy issues, due to cost issues. So we have a, a huge practice in, in supporting community radio stations all around the world. Certainly everybody that we work with, we're trying to help them make the transition to digital to make sure they're on digital platforms for all the obvious reasons. But in some places that is still hard to achieve. But historically print, you know, radio, television, online, whatever media people rely on to access the information they need to make good choices. So how do you identify who you're going to help? Do people come to you or do you have certain initiatives as like this country or this region here we need to focus on? Yeah, it's sort of a combination of factors. I mean, there's two big driving forces that cause us to sort of target a country, community, or region. One is if there's a sudden opening or sort of an opening of political space, because a lot of the world is facing significant censorship, significant inability to allow, you know, to run an independent news organization due to government repression, due to, to all sorts of things. So if we see a transition happening in a place, that's someplace that we want to work because it opens up a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs to come in and start new media outlets. It opens up a huge opportunity for governments to sort of consider, you know, regulatory regimes or laws that allow for more freedom of expression, that allows for more independent media, is more supportive of what we're trying to do. And so when we see that, we jump. That said, I don't know if you look at the trends about what's happening with independent media and freedom of expression around the world, but the, the trend line is not great. There are not a lot of those openings. And in the early 90s, when, when we really started this type of work, you know, it was the collapse, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union. There was, you know, openings happening all over the world. And so it was driving our growth in the places that we looked at. So it still happens. There have been a few places that have had sort of tentative openings in the last year, such as in Sudan and, and looking at Tunisia post-Arab Spring, which is now not as opening of the space, but looking at the few places where we do see openings and we try to target those places because there's such a big opportunity for change. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, places that are the most vulnerable, places that are, you know, potentially regularly hit with, with crises where news and information isn't just a really good thing for your democracy and for your economy, but also where news and information saves lives. And so we have sort of a real humanitarian focus when we are targeting where we go as well. Obviously, you know, our funding is all grant funded. So we need to blend our strategic emphasis about where we want to go with our ability to raise funds to support that. But those things sort of triage to sort of lead us into different directions. You know, I actually had the opportunity to go to a former Soviet country in 2018. I, the State Department invited me to go to Tajikistan as part of their speakers program to train young journalists how to do uh, or how to do podcasting. And when I went there, my idea was, well, what's the broadband like that? What's the situation is? But once you get there and you start talking to the people and you realize that their concerns are very different and their needs and their wants are very, very different. You know, they're dealing with things that, you know, we're not necessarily dealing here with here in the United States with the way that, you know, who owns the media or how's the media funded and what its relationship is with the government. So, you know, I had kind of an eye-opening experience in the sense that, you know, because I was like, you know, this seems like the last thing you want to do is bring somebody to come in and to teach podcasting. But when you realize that it's, you know, it's something that's fairly 
easy to do. You don't need a lot of technology and you can reach a lot of people very easily. You know, that's something certainly from the State Department's standpoint that would be a good thing, being able to, to spread information without being concerned about government control. So, you know, when you go into a country, are you trying to make contact with journalists? Are you speaking to journalist groups or publications or whatever to try to say, hey, how can we help? Yes, absolutely. But first of all, kudos to you going to Tajikistan. It is a tough environment, but podcasting practically anywhere in the world is a fantastic media, particularly in places that are more government control because it allows you there's flexible ways to share podcast as you know i don't need to tell you this but it's a wonderful media one of the best out there so i'm really happy to hear that you did that and tajikistan I, i've been there myself at uh, when internet has, has worked there and continues to work there a tough environment but lots of really great people that are trying to trying to do the right thing yeah i met a lot of a lot of young journalists who saw the value in being able to you know, they wanted to tell stories of depth and of importance. And I think that's where they, they became most discouraged because there, you know, there were outlets where they could write whatever they wanted to write, except to a certain extreme. And so for them, it's like, well, you know, I want to be able to talk about a family that's having troubles. Well, you can't talk about that story because that could be you know, viewed as a way, as a criticism of, you know, healthcare or whatever. And so sort of the in insidious nature of control that, right. censorship that, and the self-censorship that comes from censorship. Exactly right. That, that's the thing I, I was most surprised about was the, the self-censorship. You know, and you get on this side of the fence and you, you can sit here and you sort of judge, well, I wouldn't be like that. But, you know, your life, your livelihood, you know, your family, again, that's one of the benefits of living in a uh, society that allows you to have free speech and express it. Not everybody has that ability to do it. And maybe they have it in a you know, yeah, well, we have a free, free information, free society, but if, if people are self-censoring themselves, that's not the case. Yeah, and I'll say two things on that. I mean, I, so you can almost question, well, then why, why work there if there's so much censorship? But the truth is, there are news and information stories that still have an impact on people's lives. People still need what information they can get, even if it's limited. That's sort of the first piece. And the second piece is, we do our work based on hope and aspiration that things will eventually change. And so if you, if you get a bunch of people trained on how to do this right, if there is a change in government or, you know, there's sort of even a growing demand for change in government, you're positioning a country to do better as potential openings come. And so we, we don't shy away from censored countries, but we do recognize the limitations about what's possible as exactly as you're saying, you, your livelihood you know, even your physical safety or the safety of your family could be threatened if you push it too far. But it's important to continue telling stories, even in those situations. And getting to your question about well, what do we do when we go to a country, it, it is literally reaching out to the news organizations themselves and, you know, go through sometimes through journalist associations, if that's important, but sort of mapping what we do when we ideally when we enter a country is that we map what we call, this is a sort of geeky thing to say, but an information ecosystem, sort of looking at where people are really turning to, to make decisions, where the circles of trust are in a country. And so again, it's that mix of what type of media is really influential, what type of media 
is really viewed as an independent source of information. And then, you know, sitting down with them, talking to them, seeing if we have anything to offer their good work. And so it varies significantly depending on the country and depending on the media infrastructure, depending on, you know, the bandwidth and, and connectivity, depending on, again, you know, censorship issues. But we, we find those media that are making a difference in people's lives and see if we might have something to offer that could support their work. And so we work in partnership with them to help them advance what they're trying to do, advance their success in their communities or country. So 40 years of doing this, there was a lot of hard work in there. Can you point to some successes and say, yes, we were able to help. We contributed to this. My success story that I fall on the most is actually now something of a tragedy. I'll talk about it to give a sense of what success looks like, but this is in Afghanistan, which will sound surprising, I know, but we went into Afghanistan. We actually went there in December, 2001, but started programming in 2002 after the fall of the Taliban in that country. And it was really, when I talked earlier about transitional moments, it was certainly a transitional moment where a country that had literally no media, that, you know, a creaky state-owned system that, you know, no music allowed in most places. And there was so little ability to access news and information that was independent at all in that country right at that moment. The new government was open to change. There was a lot of enthusiasm in Afghanistan at that time to really build a better country. And so we were able to help legal advocates who were trying to get a better you know, legal regime in place to allow for freedom of expression. They were really open to global best practices there. And so we were able to help share some of those things. We were able to find, we call them radio enthusiasts. It was all radio at the time who were just really eager to set up their own radio station in their community and sort of help build a whole network of radio stations all in you know, every every one of the 34 provinces around Afghanistan. There were journalism schools opening up. There were amazing nationwide news outlets that opened up that were covering both television and radio over time. And anyway, it became, this is years in the making, years in the making. And as, as the years went by, the environment started getting more and more difficult to work. But up until August of last year, it was still considered one of the most vibrant medias. Afghanistan's media is one of the most vibrant medias in South Asia. People in annual surveys by the Asia Foundation of institutions in Afghanistan, the media historically ranked number one or number two, number two after religious figures as the most trusted public institution in the country. And so in a place that you hear nothing but bad, the story about media was phenomenally good. Of course, all of that changed in August of last year when the Taliban came back, which is devastating because this is the story I love to tell about helping you know the media really playing a role in building a nation. So our partners are regrouping. The media outlets are still producing in a much more censored and self-censored environment. So we're trying to continue to support them with the hope that things will change back again. But it's an example of success. And then, of course, how things can really slide backwards as well. So tell me about Internews and Ukraine. You know, what was your involvement there as far as information? So we've been in Ukraine for 30 years because our historic home, you know, as I talked about previously, had been working with journalists in the former Soviet Union. We had deep ties in the region and we, we started our Ukraine program nearly 30 years ago. The media in Ukraine over the years developed, you know, very robustly. There are, you know, independent stations at the city level, at the regional level, at the national level. There are a very vibrant sort of 
media community when it comes to debating what the laws should be, debating whether a public broadcaster makes sense, debating issues about how the government could control or not control the media. Over the years, it has you know, just morphed and evolved as a very vibrant media sector. Lots of challenges. There's a lot of like in many places in the world, big money can control media almost more than the government controls media. And that was certainly one of the bigger challenges in Ukraine or is one of the bigger challenges in Ukraine where oligarch controlled media certainly exists side by side with more independent news organizations. This is a place where on February 24th in the invasion the ramp up of the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, the journalists and the incredible news organizations around the country basically became all war journalists. We've been providing support, continued support to those news organizations across the country. Our support changed, started providing direct financial support to help news organizations relocate if they needed to, to move west if they needed to, to get into more safety. We started providing safety equipment, flak jackets, and other safety equipment, satellite connections, different types of, of technologies necessary to continue operating in a war zone. We are have a long-term commitment to Ukraine. We see it as a bright spot in the region and a bright spot for the future as Ukraine someday gets out of this war. And the media is just fundamental to covering the war right now and, and will be fundamental to rebuilding Ukraine in the future. So tell me about Internews and, you know, how it's tackling misinformation in some of these countries. Yeah, we have strategies both for misinformation, which often is not intended, you know, it could be sometimes benign players sharing misinformation, and then overt disinformation, which often comes from vested interest governments or even in commercial interests and the active disinformation. We were just talking about Ukraine, and Ukraine is certainly the epicenter of a disinformation war where for a long time, Russia has, has really been very, very active in, in trying to change the narrative on the ground to match their facts, which are, are different from the actual facts. A uh, few things when it comes to what we think works, and I, I, you've probably had a lot of guests talking about this, there is no silver bullet <laughs> to mis- and disinformation. It comes at many, many layers, and there's many, many different approaches that people can take we at Internews have what we, you know, our value add that, that we see to this. First of all, the most important is never fight disinformation with disinformation, <laughs> like never fight propaganda with your own propaganda. One of our Ukrainian colleagues, and I say this all the time, says that trying to do that, fighting, fighting propaganda with different propaganda is the same as trying to fight uh, cancer with tuberculosis. There's, you know, in no way would we ever want to do anything like that. So not counter narratives. We believe in building healthy content, you know, that one of the anecdotes is to make sure that if there's so much bad information out there, that there's also good information out there. Obvious statement, but we think important and important to stress. We do see a role of the platforms and platform accountability, and that's a pretty tough place to work, but we, you know, hammer home all the time to the big platforms that host media all over the world, Facebook and Google and, and others, about their role in sort of trying to help the situation. We see a role for media literacy. That's a long game, certainly a long game, and it uh, can sometimes be controversial in itself about what the right approach to that is, but I, 
I would not say that there is harm in sort of trying to teach young people to understand sources and understand how to research what they're reading or listening to. We see a role there. We actually see a role in the market itself. I mean, aside from the platforms, but even the advertising markets around the world, they have choices about where they spend their ad dollars and they can do something to starve the mis and disinformation and, and they can do something to invest in the good information. And so it's a mix of all of these things, I guess, rooted in, again, just making sure the good information continues to exist and hopefully thrive and including helping content creators, journalists and other content creators to understand their own fact checking regimes and how they should be sort of looking at their own work. So it's really, really complicated. We have a lot of different approaches that we bring to it, but I, I think it's so multifaceted in how it's happening that we do need to bring a real mix of approaches. The same State Department program that took me to Tajikistan, I, they reached out to me to help them. There was a conference several months ago in Malaysia where they were talking about disinformation. And the reason I bring it up is because one of the questions that sort of came out of it was how can we fight or how can we under recognize disinformation that's, that's coming out of the Ukraine? They were trying to understand, you know, it doesn't appear to be any sort of news that you can kind of trust that's coming out. It's difficult to tell what exactly is sort of happening. Part of that is just the environment of, of a country at war, but, you know, it's also a country where there's an active disinformation campaign going on to try to control the information. I guess it's more of a statement than a question. Like once well, I would dispute that in the sense that there is good information coming out of Ukraine. You know, you need to find it, obviously, and you'll, you'll get inundated with the disinformation, but it's out there. The independent news organizations are, are covering the war well and including, you know, there's English language news and information for the global audiences. So I hear you and understand that, you know, it doesn't take too much digging to find good sources of, of information, locally produced information from local journalists that, that can help help shape the story. Okay. So it sounds like your organization, is your organization an opportunity for somebody who wanted to, to do this type of work, who would want to go into other countries? And I mean, not that you're hiring, but is this, is there a, a way for journalists to pursue this type of work? Certainly. I mean, we, we on our website, internews.org, we do have a jobs page. We tend to hire in countries and communities which we work, people from the region or that you know sort of work at international standards but are from the region can work in local languages. So we have a, a real strong bias towards people who have the ability to work in local languages, basically. But we love people who have international journalism standards and training and, and work that can go into a place with that background. So we don't tend to parachute people in for short periods of time. We sort of roll up our sleeves and we have offices in these countries and we work with our partners over the long term. But if people are interested and have some connections to some of these countries and maybe some deep contacts and understand the context, we're always interested. So look at our job site or you know, send us a, a resume if that's your profile, because we are always looking for more talent wanting to work this way. I always caution journalists, you've experienced this. It's totally different from actually doing journalism, right? It is, it's about the values and training and mentoring and rolling up your sleeves. And it's a different path, but it's a really fulfilling one. Yeah. I would say that, you know, I was only in Tajikistan for 13 days, but it was really moving experience from a journalistic standpoint, because, you know, as you said, you're, you're talking about the core values of press freedom at a very granular level. And it's, 
it's rewarding because, you know, you recognize that the people that you're talking to, you're, you're helping. I mean, that's something that they value so much. And so you, you want to go the extra, you know, step or two to make sure that, you know, you're training them or you're giving them information that they can use. And that dedication, you don't always see that in a, a regular newsroom where people just sort of take a lot of the, our, our freedoms for granted. Exactly. It's real. It is very meaningful work. You know, we're an organization full of journalists, who, former journalists who are now dedicating their lives to this type of work and no one looks back. They really, really are finding it to be a very meaningful work that we're doing. So how did, how did you end up at Inner News? What was your path? Well, my story, unfortunately, is I'm not a journalist. So I'm not a very good example of this. I came to the organization with a deep understanding of the power of news and information to really change lives. I actually spent the early 90s in Moscow, Russia, right when the country was really opening up, working on the, the aid program there. And I saw what was happening in the media sector. I saw the transformative power of media to really ramp up change in a way that you weren't seeing in a bunch of other reforms happening in Russia in that day. And Later in my career, I moved over to the Balkans and saw it again, sort of I, the, the story of Serbia and the fall of Milosevic with some incredible, powerful radio stations sort of bringing down a dictator there. And so I just came to Internews in 2001. It was an organization filled with journalists that needed a little bit of better understanding of how you organize yourself to package that passion and experience into change in the countries in which we wanted to work. And so I came in from that sort of international development perspective and work with my journalist colleagues. Our head of programs now is a, a longtime journalist. I bring in a different perspective. The whys we're doing it and the, the impact it can have on communities is where I'm coming from. So joined in 2001 and have been here ever since and just really love the mission and, and the work that we do. So I would imagine, you know, 40 years, this company or this organization has been around, your news has been around, and there's a lot of change, obviously, that's gone on in the world. I and mean, we were just talking about Ukraine, but also the story you tell in, in Afghanistan. I mean, you're looking ahead to Internews' next 40 years. I mean, are you still hopeful? Are you still enthusiastic that this type of work will continue to make changes? You always have to be hopeful. That is, in <laughs> fact, I mean, that you, if ever you lose sight of the fact that progress is possible, it'd be really hard to do this work. But we've always seen progress. We've seen places close and we've seen them reopen, like when it comes to sort of government control. We've seen, you know, revolutions happen that can just transform lives. And so we do believe in the power of positive impact that the media can have. I mean, the trends that we're looking at in the world right now aren't the best. I mean, with the war in Ukraine and incredibly difficult impact it's having on economies around the world and food and poverty, it's going to be a tough couple of years. The last two years have been, you know, three years have been very, very difficult from the pandemic uh, to places that we've worked for a long time, such as Myanmar and Afghanistan and now Ukraine, sort of three big giant upheavals in places that were making good progress when it comes to freedom of expression, independent journalism, giant setbacks. And so we're organizationally preparing ourselves for more of that, but always rooted in the belief that, again, positive progress is possible, that places will turn around and, and will we'll continue to be there to help. Yeah. Sweeping change is great, but small positive steps forward are all, can also Absolutely. be very powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jean, this has been really great. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for giving us a lot of things to think about. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>